This is Labor Wave Revolution Radio, recorded in Corvallis, Oregon. Today on Labor Wave, we're speaking with Hilary Lazar. Hilary Lazar is a doctoral candidate in sociology at the University of Pittsburgh where she teaches about social movements, gender, power, and resistance through an anarchist lens. She is currently researching personal transformation in prefigurative spaces. Hillary has been published in Perspectives on Anarchist Theory, contributed a chapter to Anarchism and Conceptual Approach, and has worked on several other book projects, including Emma Goldman, A Documentary History of the American Years. She is a collective member of the Big Idea Bookstore, a content editor for Agency, an anarchist PR project, instructor for the Institute for Advanced Troublemaking, and is involved in graduate student worker organizing. In the first half of our conversation, we explored and discussed Hillary's essay, Connecting Our Struggles, Border Politics, Anti-Fascism, and Lessons from the Trials of Ferrero, Salido, and Graham. This piece was recently published in Perspectives on Anarchist Theory, number 30, and can be found at akpress.org. The piece explores immigration policy and practice in the United States from the early 20th century to today and highlights how such policies rely on nativist fear to target populations along racial and ethnic lines, while also using such discriminatory attacks to suppress forms of political dissent. In the second half of our talk, we covered Hillary's ongoing experiences organizing as a grad student worker for a graduate student workers union at the University of Pittsburgh. In our discussion, we covered the importance of adopting and applying intersectional frameworks to union organizing and some of the successes and challenges faced by organizers who seek to apply such frameworks. We really appreciate our listeners at LaborWave, and you can help support us and spread our content by liking us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash LaborWave. Listen to us on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com backslash LaborWave. And send us an email with ideas for an interview you would like to hear in the future at laborwavenews at gmail.com. As always on Labor Wave, we only play the music and listen to John Dwyer, as Mr. John Dwyer gave us express permission to use his music without copyright, so long as we, quote, don't break to the radical right. Thanks for listening to Labor Wave, and we hope you enjoy the content. Thanks, Hillary, for being on Labor Wave. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. So today, I really wanted to talk about a couple of different pieces that you've written and also some work that you're doing organizing with the grad union. It seems like one of the things that is particularly emphasized in all of your work and activism is the need to take an interlocking and intersectional framework to analysis and practice. So on that note, you've written this piece recently for Perspectives on Anarchist Theory called Connecting Our Struggles, Border Politics, Anti-Fascism, and Lessons from the Trials of Ferrero, Salido, and Graham. I wanted to just like dig in a little bit deeper into that piece, if you don't mind. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so it begins by talking about the stories of Man, the journal, editors Marcus Graham and Vincenzo Ferrero, and then their supporter Dominic Salito. So for our listeners, can you just give a brief overview on this story and how it relates to contemporary immigration policies? Yeah, absolutely. So the story of Man, um, the periodical published by the international group, um, as well as the trials um, 
and the efforts to deport the editor, Marcus Graham, as well as his associates, uh, Vincenzo Ferrero, as well as Domenico Salido, are one of the lost histories of anarchism, of uh, so-called American anarchism. And what I find so fascinating about this is that not only is it one of these missing pieces, but that in fact it has direct relevance to understanding how mechanisms of domination operate in contemporary society and helps us to understand the ways in which explicitly we can understand the interrelationship between border politics, immigration policy, and efforts to quell dissent. One of the things that I really find critical about the story of this paper and the efforts to suppress it as well as these corresponding trials is the ways in which it highlights how deportation policies specifically and efforts to exclude or to determine who is considered a legitimate citizen and what political perspectives they have is used as a way to effectively control populations and control, uh, again, political dissent. And this becomes all the more salient for understanding contemporary politics because as, as I'll describe in, in talking more about the trial itself, what becomes so clear is that it's very easy to leverage nativist fears as a way to intensify pre-existing targeting of marginalized and vulnerable populations, including immigrants, as well as those with more radical perspectives. And so the combination thereof can become a very powerful mechanism for not only controlling who's allowed into uh, a given uh, geography, but also um, what perspectives they're allowed to, to hold. So again, it's looking at the relationship between these different systems of domination and control. I'm curious, before we start talking um, more in detail about the story of man, why is it, in your opinion, that these connections aren't often drawn out in like popular discourse on immigration policies? When I listen to news and like read some papers, I, I hear pretty quickly the kind of racialized dimension of immigration policies, but I don't often see the connection made between how they serve as a suppression of political dissent. Why do you think that might be? Well, I mean, I think so often with all forms of um, mechanisms of control that that's intentional, right? Um, and in the ways in which so often our struggles, and this speaks to my interest in trying to draw out the relationship across different fronts of struggle to, to point out the ways in which they are interconnected. Oftentimes, um, it you know, there's a kind of a siloing, both in terms of uh, understanding our struggles within movements, but also in terms of the way um, uh, those in positions of authority are seeking to um, pit our struggles against one another. Uh, so I think, think that's certainly at, at play here. And that being said, I would say that uh, not only in the case of looking at the relationship between border politics and control of political thought and political dissent, but just in general in terms of thinking about um, shifts in our struggles today, that there's an increasing awareness that there's an interrelationship across um, systems of control and across our corresponding struggles. And, and in fact, there's, of course, really ter terrific and important work 
that's in particular coming out of, I would say, decolonial thinkers and scholars who are already pointing to this relationship. So I think it's it's really critical for us to acknowledge that, that some really fantastic work is out there. I think of some of the work um, by uh, Harsha Walia, for example, or some of the, the work by Maya Ramnath um, and other, other scholars and other organizers who are already trying in our, our practice spaces as well, right, in the mobilizations themselves to draw those relationships out. And in fact, I was just even reading on some more popular, um, popular pieces, I think it, this one was in, in Truth Out, um, an activist who was talking about the ways in which some of the current immigration policies were explicitly being used, that ICE was explicitly um, targeting those who have been engaged in, um, in organizing in migrant communities. And, and so, so I think that this is not only, again, in kind of the, the scholarly front, but that, that folks who are very much engaged and understanding these relationships and who are engaged in, in the organizing on the ground are really beginning to try to highlight this and make it more popularly known. And adding to that discourse is your piece in Perspectives that really highlights the connections. So I, I wanna just ask more about this history. So this forgotten story, this forgotten history lesson of anarchists that were deported and politically suppressed. Can you tell us about Man, the journal, why it was so incendiary to the state and then the particular people that got swept up in that whole uh, deportation scheme. Yeah, absolutely. So MAN was um, a journal that was published by um, a network, a, a group of anarchists that were part of a broader, actually transnational network uh, called the International Group. It, it first appeared in January 1933, and it ran until it finally folded in 1940 after several years of active suppression by the state. And it was published by uh, Romanian-born anarchist Marcus Graham, who had been deeply involved in some of the um, New York anarchist communities and scene, uh, specifically the, the Jewish communities in, um, in New York City in the 1920s. And, um, and he had been recruited by Vincenzo Ferrero, who was the former editor of the Italian-American Gallianist periodical L'Emancipazione, or uh, The Emancipation. Um, and he was recruited to help establish this as the su successor paper to that, that earlier periodical and in an English language base. Uh, and for those who may not be familiar with Gallianist anarchism, it's named after Italian-American anarchist uh, Luigi Galliani, who's, who's very much known for his advocacy of propaganda by the deed, right, or more militant opposition to the state. Uh, and this was very much apparent in many of the features and uh, pieces in, in the journal and, and the ways in which uh, it promoted a type of anarchism that, that was more, quote unquote, incendiary in its, in its language. It was also a, a very important voice at that time for uh, giving space to anti-fascist critique, because again, right, we're in a, a period where fascism was very much on the rise. And, and so this was one of those vehicles. And of course, periodicals in general were really a critical 
a critical vehicle and, and organ for giving voice to um, anti-fascist critique and dissent, um, as well as being a, a very important voice for putting out anti-racist perspectives. And many of the, many of the articles featured in MAN um, were, were very vocal about their anti-fascist and anti-racist stance. So, um, so that gives you a little bit of a sense for where they were coming from and why that might be considered threatening. Of course, this is also, and we can talk more about this, um, at a time when even more so than some of the other kind of radical left currents, that anarchism was really considered kind of the political boogeyman and kind of the center of um, kind of anti-state repression. And so it was already kind of on the radar in terms of being a potential, a potential threat, right? And if, again, if we think about the ways in which periodicals functioned at that time, right, we're talking about an age before Twitter, we're not talking about Facebook organizing. Journals like this were a really critical connector across communities, both within, within a country and across borders. Um, and, and in fact, although Man was first published out of, based out of Oakland, uh, eventually there was readership you know, kind of across the globe as far as Cuba. Letters were coming in from the United Kingdom, Germany, Japan, New Zealand, Australia. Even, even one, letter to, uh, one letter to the editor came in from, from Palestine. Right, so so it served not only as kind of this voice for anti-fascism, but also actively served as a network connector across different spaces of resistance and struggles and anarchist communities. So tell us a little bit about the suppression of man and some of its key figures in your piece, Marcus Graham, Dominic Salito, and Vincenzo Barrero. On April 11th, 1934, immigration inspectors in combination with local, local police forcibly entered the restaurant where they were publishing, where, where Graham had his printing, printing press, uh, forcibly entered the restaurant, ransacked the space, raided it, grabbed all the, all the, the printed materials, took the printing press, and arrested Vincenzo Ferrero and Domenico Salido, who were in fact the, the owners of the restaurant. And so to give a little bit of background about them, uh, again, Ferrero had been the former, former editor of this um, well-known anarchist periodical, and, and Domenico Salido was one of, one of his associates and also associated with that, that community. And so they, they ransacked the space, and hauled them off to Angel Island, which is the West Coast equivalent of Ellis Island, and, and told them that they were being held for deportation. And, and so almost immediately, there was kind of a concerted effort to, um, to challenge this, this um, potential deportation. And uh, kind of within months, uh, an international solidarity movement had sprung up in, um, in defense of, uh, of their pleas for not only asylum, um, but, but for raising awareness around the ways in which that this was explicitly a political attack on, um, on dissenting perspectives. And, and so, so effectively what happened with the case is that um, they were, their cases were, 
taken on by a group called the uh, American Committee for Protection of the Foreign Born. But it wasn't just uh, through the work of this group that was associated with the ACLU, but essentially this kind of um, or organic arising of this international solidarity movement. Uh, that was spearheaded very much by folks who were in the anarchist community as well as the labor community. And, um, and so different defense chapters, much like we see in the defense work and the solidarity work that's happening today, right? Whether it was around the J-20 defendants or um, other uh, um, political defendants. But so, so there was this broad scale effort coming out of these different radical as well as radical progressive currents um, as folks tried to raise the funding necessary for their legal fees, um, tried to provide the support necessary um, to, to family members. So for, so for example, Salido, and, and I think we need to problematize right, uh, notions of, uh, you know, uh, privileging the fact that they were legal residents. Uh, but I think it, it's salient to note that they, they were legal residents here. And um, Dominico had um, been in the United States for 15 years and was a widowed father with a three-year-old daughter um, of whom he was, had sole custody. And um, Ferreira was more advanced in age. Uh, so he was, um, had been here for 30 years um, and was a legal resident. And, um, and, and so a lot of the support was also going for, say, taking care of the, the three-year-old daughter, daughter or ensuring that Ferrero um, was uh, maintaining, uh, maintaining health by, despite his more advanced age. And, um, and, and so, so there was this incredible uh, kind of network that walked them through a several-year legal proceeding that eventually reached the Supreme Court and got attention from some of the, the top kind of left-leaning uh, radical intellectuals at the time. We're talking hundreds of organizations. Um, we're talking, uh, you know, thousands of petitions sent to stay their deportation. And essentially they were saying, these folks have been very vocal in speaking out against Mussolini, if you deport them back to Italy, their lives are in jeopardy. And, and of course, their, their pleas for asylum were, were denied. Uh, they spent years going in and out of Angel Island as well as Ellis Island. And, and then ultimately what happened was that um, in, I believe it was 38, Salido's case was finally dropped. But again, keep in mind, right, he'd been in and out of, of um, being held and detained away from his, away from his child. Uh, again, can we, we can see these parallels, right? Um, uh, his case was eventually dropped, but, but Ferrero's was not. And if he hadn't managed to go on the, on the lamb and disappear off the radar and assumed um, an alias as Johnny the Cook, and get back to California, then he would have been deported, in fact. Um, meanwhile, at the same time, Graham was also simil uh, facing similar persecution. And of course, Graham was really the one who was maintaining the periodical. So this is where, of course, the, the periodical itself came under um, serious attack. Graham was also uh, picked up uh, a, a couple of years after 
Ferrero and Salito's ordeal began. And he too was in and out of being detained and um, effectively he was being held for the crime of possessing subversive anarchist literature. Um, and, and although they didn't end up effectively deporting him because they couldn't determine where he should be deported to, but they did give him a slap on the wrist. Um, and again, after multiple years being in and out of detention, all of the energy going into the legal defense and the solidarity efforts um, for these three trials, all of the energy and finances had, had been diverted away from the paper. And so this really critical, really critical paper and really critical connector for these different anti-fascist and anarchist networks, um, it folded. So in 1940, uh, Graham finally went to serve six months um, and, and the paper, the paper folded. Another aspect that you really draw out of this story is how throughout the process of their persecution and the trials, they were heavily being racialized in the discourse and the discussion about why they were not fit to be proper citizens and patriots of the United States. And I really like this quote that you have in the essay that I'm going to read. It says, Critiques of anarchist agitators were impossible to disentangle from xenophobic sentiment and the popular perception that their radicalism was due to ethnic and or biological deficiencies. Effectively, foreign-born radicals, particularly those from Southern and Eastern Europe, were denied full access to, quote, whiteness, end quote, were racialized because of their political beliefs. I think that this is something that anarchists today often neglect in conversations about what anarchism is and where it has been is this dimension of the past that was immigrant led and how the ideas were racialized. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I really appreciate that you draw that out in this piece. And I want to know, uh, how does this connect to today and the policies surrounding immigration and who belongs and who doesn't belong and how the state determines that? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think it's important also just to, to note that I think that at least a, a portion of that really um, uh, kind of excellent quote that you just read, I think part of it actually came from this terrific historian, Kenyon Zimmer, um, who, who also writes on some of the racialized dimensions to, to the trials. For a long time, there had been this perspective that anarchism effectively didn't exist um, in the 1930s. Uh, I mean, just recently, there have been uh, a couple of pieces that have come out. Uh, Kenyon's work, um, uh, I believe it's Men Against the State, and then um, Andy Cornell has a piece, um, a, a book, Unruly Equality, and they both, they both touch on um, the trials as well as man. And, and so I, I'll just put a put a plug out there to, to check out some of their work too. But yes, absolutely. And part of what I was trying to do in this piece was to highlight, to underscore some of the racialized dimensions to their experiences and the ways in which it's impossible to disentangle kind of the, the racial profiling with also the ways in which um, political suppression of political dissent um, occurs. 
And, and we can look at this from a historical perspective, just in terms of the policies, right? If you look at the, histor the history of immigration and deportation policies, you can see that there's this bounded relationship between the two, that there's this long history of anti-anarchist and anti-immigrant sentiment in the US that, that are effectively intertwined. Uh, and that it's very difficult to see them as as distinct. In this case, these cases, of course, really help to to highlight that. But just kind of thinking about it, uh, and this the history of our policies, going back to the earliest days, right? We have the Alien and Sedition Act of 1798, or the Indian Removal Act of 1830, which were both explicitly aimed at eliminating unwanted groups. Um, later, though, it was uh, there was a Supreme Court ruling in 1893 that effectively changed the policy around um, kind of quote unquote uh, constitutional safeguards um, in in terms of deportation cases, and and then effectively shifted it from um, to to an administrative process, and and in so doing, um, proceedings uh, became kind of subject to star chamber hearings, um, legal representation wasn't, uh, wasn't required. You could use telegraphic warrants, and this is what, um, how uh, Ferrero and Salido were picked up. It, it basically became um, a, an easier process to just quickly, and uh, through an expedited process, um, remove people who were considered uh, problematic or uh, threatening in any sort of way. Uh, and it's significant to note that this, this case was, was explicitly, this, it was uh, Feng Yuting versus the US, was specifically used as a way to expedite the process of removing um, Asian immigrants. Um, and so, so there's this long, long history going back to the earliest forms of our, our immigration policy. Of course, in 1903, there was the Anarchist Act, um, and, and again, especially all the, given who anarchists, who were comprising kind of the anarchist populations, it was often, um, as well as radical, uh, kind of radical labor, right? Uh, many of these groups were very much coming out of different immigrant communities, um, whether it was Southern uh, and Eastern European communities or Asian communities. And, and so even there, just based on who is being targeted um, and who kind of the radical voices were at, at the time, um, uh, again, it becomes really difficult to see it, who is the anarchist act being targeted at, right, without thinking of that, that racialized dimension to it. Um, and, and not only is there kind of this history of finding ways to expel folks, but also to bar them from coming in, right? Um, so thinking about laws like the, the um, Nation, uh, National Origins Act, I believe in 24, was set caps at, at who could come in. And that was used not only to prevent different ethnic groups and uh, folks from different um, national origins from coming in, but also um, was uh, de facto used also to set uh, as an excuse for limiting who would be able to, based on political perspective, gain entry into the United States. Um, so, so if we begin to trace this history, 
I, I think it's important to make note of it uh, because when we begin to think about, well, what's happening today, it, we have to understand that this is part of a broader historical pattern. This is deeply embedded in our, our history um, and, and the ways in which these types of policies serve as these mechanisms of state-based control and state-based control um, along ethnic and racial lines, as well as along political lines. And again, we can think about the, the parallels. It was a period of intense um, kind of national panic during the Great Depression, right? And there was already, and particularly in California where they were based, there was already this, this deep history of kind of um, xenophobic and anti-radical sentiment Right. Uh, I think it's important to remember that, of course, it was California where there was virulent um, uh, anti-Chinese vigilante uh, uh, organizing that had happened at the turn of the century. And, and by, by the 1930s, California had an economy that was very much based on migrant and, um, and immigrant labor and both um, Mexican uh, uh, Mexican-American labor as well as, as Asian and Asian-American uh, labor. And there is also um, these other elements of Southern and uh, Southern Eastern European um, uh, laborers as well. And, and so at that time, there was a broad scale effort to organize, right? During the, the height of the depression, there was an upswing um, and in part, this, uh, this was to do with kind of um, some of the, the militant organizing happening out of the CIO, um, AFL at the time, um, some of the communist organizing, some anarchist organizing as well. And so in California, what we had was a um, period of a lot of fear, a lot of nativism a lot of native, nativist kind of organizing happening, and at the same time, a lot of labor-based, um, immigrant-led labor-based organizing. And, and it created this like in very intense, um, volatile situation. Uh, so it comes as no surprise that, uh, that man would be on the radar for local vigilante groups, local law enforcement officers, as well as um, immigration officials who are working um, in hand with one another uh, to suppress potential, potential threat. Um, and, and so it comes as no surprise that right on the eve of the general strike in 1934, um, July of 1934, which shut down, it was um, a, a labor move that shut down San Francisco, uh, which, is, which is where they were based, it comes as no surprise that a month earlier they they raided the office, right? Um, but but we have to understand that uh, uh, again, it was this confluence of xenophobia along with anti-radical sentiment and uh, kind of the attribution of uh, kind of a, a racialized understanding of of who would be a threat, right? And so that's, that's really the backdrop to, to the trial. And we can see how that is playing out in today's organizing and struggles as well. Something else that your piece does that I really appreciate is it, it highlights that these 
revitalized anti-immigration policies never disappeared. Uh, there's kind of like a, lim- a liberal mythology that seems to think Trump is like an aberration that just emerged out of nowhere. But what you do is draw out how, in fact, these policies were a continuation from the periods that man was in operation. And then they really got bamped back up in the Clinton administration, mm-hmm. the Bush two administration, throughout the Obama administration, and then up till today. Um, can you talk a little bit about some of the more modern policies? So there's this, as yeah, as you as you said, liberal myth that basically since the Immigration Act of 1965, which banned the types of, of caps that had uh, been put in place through earlier policies. Um, that that suddenly we we had you know open borders and uh, you know kind of the the mythology of our 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 great melting pot and you know uh, a land uh, of freedom for all and and that's 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 really exactly as you, that's a myth right that that idea that we were suddenly open to to all um, and and that we didn't have this this deep history that um of of border politics that was deeply exclusionary and deeply policing in terms of who can be here and and how and and um uh and what perspectives they can hold uh uh, yeah it's deeply embedded in the fabric of kind of the the u.s um border policies and um and and practices and and so so even though yes there was the shift in 65 um it's really important to note of course you know post 9 11 in in particular right we entered a a new a new phase right in terms of um kind of procedures similar to how the the case in uh the late 1800s had, had shifted policy so too, after 9-11, of course, with kind of the bolstering of the national security state, we had a shift as well. And, um, and so something that Trump has just bolstered, um, 273G, um, is, is a program that effectively established ICE as well as um, DHS. And it, it allows for, um, quote unquote, stipulated removal, which enables it facilitates deportation in so many words. Uh, And so that actually got put into place under Bush. It's just been, you know, the draconian elements to it, um, which also enables kind of de facto um, uh, use of local law enforcement and coordination across law enforcement with with ICE, um, although bolstered recently under under Trump, has been in place since, since Bush. And, and I think it's even important to, to recall that under Obama, more than 2 million people were deported. And, and so to think that we're uh, a country that's uh, just open to all, again, is, is very much uh, a misunderstanding of, of how, um, how the state works here. That being said, yes, under Trump, we have seen kind of an intensification, right? We saw the bolstering of of certain policies. Uh, we've seen kind of increased rhetoric around, right, um, kind of the, the, the building of the wall. We've seen 
um, increased scare tactics, right, with the, the migrant caravans. Uh, we've seen, right, one of the very first things upon taking office uh, was the, the efforts to um, ban, uh, right, the quote-unquote Muslim ban, which, which while it, it didn't get put into to place, largely through the airport protests, um, is, is certainly not off, off the table, right? Um, and, and, and so I think it's important for us to trace these histories and trace these policies and see the ways in which they're, they're part of this broader pattern they didn't stop in 65 and um and what we're seeing now is really building on a set of mechanisms and structures that go back to the earliest um uh the earliest days of of this this nation state's history and on that point i really appreciate in your kind of final section of the piece what all of this might mean in terms of its implications of and what is to be done about immigration policy. So I'm going to just read a long quote that I think ties it all together pretty well, recognizing that these are a continuation of immigration policies. They have been racialized since the onset of the state formation. You write, while reforms may grant access or, quote, legitimacy, unquote, to certain individuals or populations, it will only be through the abolition of the white supremacist imperialism of the nation state and its interconnected systems of control from prisons and policing to border imperialism and the national security state, that all peoples will be allowed full status as valued free individuals in our society. Indeed, as decolonial thinkers like Harsha Walia and undoing border imperialism point out, this means adopting a more liberatory approach to immigrate solidarity, one that shifts attention from ensuring citizenship toward challenging capitalism and settler colonialism and the settler state itself. With all these lessons, what are some opportunities for hope and possibilities that the story of man draws out as well as some of these more recent phenomenons of protest? One of the things, and I was highlighting this before, one of the things that I really wanted to illustrate in the piece is not just that man was suppressed, is not just that these trials happened, is not just that these mechanisms of control exist, is not just that we have to understand kind of the, the racialized colonial project as, as it uh, manifested in these cases and the suppression of this important anti-fascist voice, but also that there was this incredible movement for solidarity with those who are being persecuted. And that by connecting across space, across borders, that these folks were able to demonstrate that even in the, uh, even under the, the weight of that kind of political repression, that, that they were still going to mobilize. They were going to provide Ferrero, Graham, and Salido with the support that they were going to find ways for as long as they could to ensure that the publication got published uh, and that they were going to challenge that type of state-based control and that they were going to literally take it to the streets, take it through petitions, uh, take it through running um, kind of media pieces through this huge uh, awareness campaign 
and that they were going to organize in their own local communities these defense committees, right, that began to raise questions about these types of controls and this kind of impact on immigrant communities as well as radical voices. And, and so for me, it was very much also about highlighting the, the movement that sprung up around them as a, a message uh, for folks today, take, take heart, look, uh, these mechanisms have been in place for a long time, uh, but they're also an opportunity for us to come together and begin to put pressure pressure where it's where it's needed um and that in fact that ultimately that this helped to forge connections across borders right it also helped to radicalize an entire new generation of organizers many of the people who were coming out at that time to do the defense work on behalf of ferrero and salido were doing so for the first time right i i did another an oral history um with with um Audrey, uh, good friend who um, has has since passed, uh, but was a really critical organizer in anarchist communities out in California, um, even up until um, uh, when I, I I met her in in two thousand nine was very much in, engaged in in local uh, local organizing and, and anarchist reading groups and, um, providing space to the community to come together in her house. And, um, and some of her earliest organizing work was as part of this committee. She remembered doing it as a, basically a, a young teen. And so, so, um, even when we feel like, uh, our efforts are in vain, you don't, you may not know what the ripple effect is, is down, down the road. Um, and I would also say that, uh, hearkening back to what you were just saying in terms of, we can't just talk about reforms. What we have to do is expand our notion for what it means to provide um, support uh, for creating a more liberatory society as a whole. And that means adopting a more liberatory understanding and approach to immigrant solidarity. Um, and that we need to shift beyond kind of the, the logic of ensuring citizenship to challenging the st settler state uh, as a whole, right? Um, and, and so as we see in today's organizing, whether it's, um, whether it's doing support work for folks who are, are um, providing work for immigrant communities, who are being so harshly targeted by ICE, whether it's folks who are down at the border, um, like the, the folks who are right now, um, uh, who were just recently on trial for providing food for uh, folks who are trying to cross the border, whether it is um, anybody who's engaged uh, in, in kind of challenging the notion of, of detention, right, who are part of um, kind of uh, the abolish ice mobilizing, right? We, I, I think the term abolish is, is really critical. And, and even though some would say it's being co-opted, I think it's really important that, um, that we do shift to this perspective of uh, abolishment, abolishment of the settler colonial state, abolishment of this type of detention and these types of um, practices uh, that reforms that reforms won't truly ensure a fully liberatory society. We need to move beyond the logic 
of the settler state. And we need to move beyond the logic that, um, that, that we can ensure uh, true freedom by simply granting citizenship and deeming some as legal um, and allowed. And as you conclude in your piece, part of how we move beyond these things is by learning that our struggles are connected and in some cases even in their historical origins. that you're currently involved in is unionizing efforts at the University of Pittsburgh for the grad student workers there. And I want to discuss with you your experiences doing these union organizing and some things that you've learned from it. But first, I want to hear about how you approach union organizing. Like what frameworks do you adopt in order to inform your practice as an organizer? So one of the things, not only in my union organizing, but in general informing my political practices, as well as what I'm interested in looking at in terms of, of from a theoretical or scholarship perspective, is the idea of interlocking oppression and really critically interrogating the ways in which our struggles are are interrelated and of course we were just talking about that in the context of man and the ways in which i was drawing out the relationship between border politics immigration policy and um control of of political dissent um but really that's a theme throughout all of my writings as well as a, a theme that i try to underscore in my work as an organizer, as part of the um, campaign on behalf of graduate student employees. And, and so I feel like one of the things, obviously, that is, is so critical to my own political praxis and perspective uh, is that I'm coming from an anarchist perspective. And, um, and for me, one of the most appealing and potentially revolutionary elements um, potentialities of anarchism as the way in which it underscores the need to end all forms of hierarchy and domination. Uh, and that for a truly liberatory society to exist uh, necessitates that all are free. Or as the saying goes, none are free until all are free. And, and of course, this isn't unique to anarchism. This sentiment exists across different radical currents, across different fronts of struggles. And I would say it's even becoming more evident across contemporary mobilizations. And so a lot of what I've been doing in my own thinking and writing is trying to kind of uh, trace out the ways in which this idea that we need to contest all forms of domination, 
all forms of structural oppression and, and the ways in which uh, there, there's a dynamic relationship across them plays out in different radical schools of thought, um, the way it plays out in contemporary forms of anarchism. And what this means for our work as organizers, um, not just on a theoretical level, but also in terms of our solidarity efforts and how we engage in different forms of shared struggle together on the ground. And this is very much the perspective and framework that's informing the work that I do as part of the grad student organizing committee. Speaking as a labor organizer myself, I imagine trying to apply this framework of interlocking oppression analysis as well as power analysis from an anarchist perspective is very difficult to do when it seems that a lot of unions operate under the assumption that bread and butter issues are the only issues that matter for the union itself. So what has your experience been with the grad student organizing you've been doing? And have you been able to apply these frameworks? Certainly, oftentimes in uh, union structures are more traditionally and, and hierarchically organized. Uh, and certainly our, our campaign, I wouldn't, I wouldn't define it as a horizontal campaign. But that being said, at least at, uh, as part of the work that we've been doing together, it really started um, through the efforts of the grad students uh, kind of independently uh, several years ago. And, and a lot of the folks who were doing some of the early organizing um, uh, in those early days, uh, many, many of us were coming from a more anarchist perspective. Some folks had cut their teeth in uh, kind of the, the Occupy movement, actually. Um, other folks had uh, a kind of a deeper history of organizing and really were very much invested in trying to understand the efforts, not just in terms of bread and butter, but in terms of pushing for more participatory um, uh, aspects of decision making. How do we bring um, voice to, to grad student employees? How do we create an organization um, that allows for a voice uh, a seat at the table and, and a way to weigh in on the decisions that are impacting our lives as um, student workers, but also as um, members of this broader academic community. And so we actually built this type of organizing into our early um, organizing committee structure, rotating um, facilitation of the, the, um, the meetings, um, doing all sorts of trainings to ensure that folks um, uh, felt that they could take uh, leadership roles as as part of of the committee, but uh, but in terms of how do we make these connections? I, I mean, as an organizer, a lot of our work is really about having those one on one conversations. I mean, beyond just kind of the the canvassing um, at the different stages, letting folks know about the campaign efforts. Uh, getting a sense for what their grievances are, hearing about those desire for um, uh, better support for bread and butter issues, right? That was certainly going on. Uh, but it's also an opportunity to make connections with other students, uh, student employees, to make connections with other workers, to make connections with those who are involved in different forms of struggle. Uh, these conversations are really critical moments where we can do consciousness raising work. And, and so in the conversations that I've had over time, although I've done that 
that canvassing work and, and talked about bread and butter issues, what I always try to do is frame the conversation as an opportunity to talk also about the ways in which our work together and our desire to establish a grad student union um, is really part of a broader resistance, a broader resistance to the precarious economic situation of millions of workers and their families, not just here in the United States, but globally due to the expansion of global capitalism, neoliberalism. And so I very much frame this as part of a broader political project, that it's not just about the experience of graduate student employees, it's about precarity, it's about economic inequality, it's about supporting and joining with other workers um, in this struggle against neoliberal policies and global capitalism. But it's not just about securing economic justice. It's ultimately about ensuring and working to build a more equitable and deeply participatory world, which can start in the workplace and can start by connecting, not just across departments and disciplines, not just across the university, but also understanding the ways in which our struggle and our struggle as workers are tied to other struggles as well. How successful do you think those connections have been drawn for folks? Are the demands of the union reaching a scale that addresses things beyond the bread and butter issues? Yeah, I would, I would say so. And, and I think that that uh, is really to the credit to all the, the different folks who are, are part of, of this campaign, uh, campaign work. Um, and there, there have been hundreds of people who have um, been, been part of this effort. Uh, and, and I would say that part of the way that, that it's been successful is that along with, along with kind of getting, you know, getting people to, to sign cards, we're actually, we have not yet had our vote. Um, that's scheduled probably to happen later in, in April. Um, but not only is it, you know, was it initially about collecting cards to, uh, to get the petition so that we could vote, and now is it not, it's not just about saying, hey, we're going to have this vote. Uh, what are the types of things we might ultimately want out of um, increased wages or, or better benefits? But, but really, um, we've, we've gone beyond that, um, and part of our work has been to kind of hold the university accountable on a number of levels that speaks to understanding that the issues that grad student employees, other contingent faculty, and really um, everybody that's part of these, uh, the, the university community um, is impacted by, including, for example, um, there was a, a conversation and an effort that was spearheaded by, by the campaign, uh, folks involved in the campaign, to get the name removed of uh, a building on campus that was named in honor of the person who had conducted the Tuskegee experiments, which of course uh, was exper experimenting on women of color for, for medical, medical experimentation. And, and so by having, uh, basically asking the university to be accountable to having named this hall after this person, it was highlighting the ways in which the, the university was 
implicitly, explicitly engaging in uh, support for this racist practice. And, and so it raised really important questions, dialogues through panels, through petitions. It, it was raising issues around the need for racial justice on campus, which served as a segue, not only for removing and changing the name, um, but for having broader conversations around the ways in which um, building solidarity isn't just for bread and butter issues, but also for addressing these other critical struggles that are happening in our communities, including the need for racial justice. Also for um, another thing that we've been working on right now very actively has to do with the changes to Title IX. And so along with doing our campaigning, we're also using this as an opportunity to have conversations and to get a petition circulated, which is really a vehicle for, for it's a tool for us to have conversations um, with other students to help raise awareness around this, this shift to Title IX to, that asks the university to be um, accountable to its students, its uh, employees, its staff, and that even though these, these changes to Title IX have been made, that they are going to um, do the right thing and continue to support trans folks and survivors, um, and that they are going to hold themselves to a different standard, even though policy has changed. And, and so again, this has served as a way for us to have these conversations around the types of struggles that are happening, not only on campus, but in kind of society at large. And, and so even though we're there uh, as part of the organizing committee or part of, part of the, um, uh, the union efforts, uh, we're also um, really trying to uh, do that solidarity work with, with other struggles as well. And, um, and how successful has it been? I, I mean, I think some folks are more able um, and willing to, to see those connections. Other folks are still more concerned with bread and butter, certainly. Uh, you can't uh, critique folks who are concerned about the fact that we're living on poverty wages, right? And doing um, a large bulk of the labor at, at uh, the university. Um, but I think that a lot of people have been very receptive as evidenced by kind of the, the campus mobilizations around um, changing the name of the hall, around getting that petition um, regarding Title IX circulated, um, the ways in which uh, it's stemmed into um, a, a very kind of active mobilizing by undergrads, as well as by um, the tenured fac faculty as well. And so, so I think that these conversations have been critical um, and are kind of the first step towards doing broader solidarity work and a way to tie our campaigning to these broader struggles. Uh, on Labor Wave, we had the ability and privilege to speak with Bill Fletcher Jr., labor organizer and thinker, about some of these similar topics on the broader national scale of the labor movement. Mm -hmm. One thing that he had suggested is that right now we're in a moment where the soul of the labor movement is being fought over between those of folks on the left and the radical left and progressive left, between the center and pragmatist elements of the labor movement. Mm -hmm. So thinking about your local struggle for unionizing efforts and some of the successes you've been able to have in drawing these connections about national and global precarity, what are some things you think that could be used as a model for the bigger United States labor movement? How might some of, how might the soul of the labor movement actually be won for the left? Well, that's not a big question at all. 
<laughs> start by listening to the interview with Bill Fletcher. Uh, uh, I mean, I don't want to belabor the the point, but I really do think that um, by by modeling the ways in which um, these types of campaigns can also be leveraged as important kind of platforms for amplifying other struggles uh, and for demonstrating that um, it, it's not just even in terms of solidarity. If you even think about our constituents, right, the experience of whether it's the graduate student employees, and I'll come back again to the, the case of the graduate student employees um, and campus organizing or the contingent faculty. If you think about who the workers are and what their experiences are at a very pragmatic level you can't disentangle it from other forms of structural and uh, oppression uh, i mean think about uh in terms of let's let's take gender justice um think about who the the ten tenured faculty are and the discrepancy between um what men and women are are earning uh, among uh, among even the the, ta uh, the those tenured faculty. Um, think about who comprises uh, those faculty. I believe it's only two percent of all tenured faculty are women of color. Just two percent, right? Um, and, and those numbers, I know at least at at my university, are are strikingly similar in terms of the the demographics of. Um, the graduate student employees as well. Uh, and so you can't look at numbers like that and just reduce this to a bread and butter issue. We need to then begin to think about the role of structural racism, the ways in which uh, patriarchy and misogyny are determining hiring practices and um, who ends up contingent, who ends up tenured right um and, and so just even at the very practical level i think that it, it that it's critical for us to to demonstrate the ways in which when we're talking about supporting employees when we're talking about uh supporting workers rights we need to have those broader conversations because otherwise we're not supporting all of the workers and and that's very much the case in the grad student organizing um, other contingent and, and faculty organizing, as well as, you know, the, the labor movement at, at whole, uh, as a whole. Um, and so these campaigns need to be leveraged as ways to, um, to make those connections explicit. For our listeners that are maybe doing some of this organizing work, I wanted to ask just a couple of questions about your experience that could help give some practical advice. One, how long have you been doing it? How long has this campaign been happening? So this has been a this has been a, a longer one. We've been at it for about four years now. Um, uh, for the first year, it was really just a handful of us, kind of very much under the radar, um, sneaking around, literally, right, like creeping around the hallways, trying to find uh, fellow graduate workers uh, in uh, you know behind closed doors. Are you are you a grad student employee? Uh, can we talk for a minute? Um, uh, and to the, the massive campaign effort that it now is, we connected with the steelworkers about a year afterwards. We, um, at the time, were very much still operating, uh, like I mentioned before, 
um, along kind of a consensus decision-making model. We were a smaller group. There were about 25 of us that were very actively involved at the time. We're very much all engaged in kind of vetting different um, uh, possibilities and, and went with, with our local um, the steel workers. And so we've been working with them and very much in kind of a collaborative process for the last three years. And at least at our university, we've, we've actually encountered some very, very, well, some people would say it hasn't been very heavy pushback, uh, but it is a, a deeply anti-union uh, university. And um, they did, in fact, hire uh, a union-busting law firm that had, was the same one that was successful in breaking the campaign at Penn State last, last year. And, and we've, we've managed to, to kind of triumph over, over that move that the university pulled. Um, and in fact, we, we will be holding our, our vote in um, later this spring. So for someone who uh, holds on to radical left principles and is trying to do this work, what advice might you have for them in terms of weathering the slow grind of what you do? I mean, four years is a long time, and it sounds like you're close to the finish line, at least mm -hmm. with the vote. But then we all know that then there's the first camp contract negotiations and there's more building to be done. So how do you sustain yourself? That's a good question. I, I think that part of what has happened in such a, a long campaign is, is that there's been kind of different waves um, over the four years, right? Uh, where some of the early organizers, and I think that this is uh, appropriate in, in really creating a participatory movement, campaign, mobilization, uh, that there's been kind of um, shifts over time as different folks have stepped in and have had more energy or space to, um, to commit themselves to kind of the, the daily grind or kind of um, bottom lining uh, different elements of the efforts. Um, and, and then it's shifted again. And, and so some of the early folks kind of took steps back, right? I know that I, I did, um, and, and then at different moments have found um, more time and space again. Of course, right, with, with graduate students, kind of there's an economy of time, right, whether you're in your dissertation phase or teaching or what's your teaching load, it's constantly shifting. And, and so I think it's important to A, provide the, the tools, but also the space so that different folks have been able to kind of step in and out of leadership roles um, and, and got the training that they needed to step in and out of those different leadership roles over time. And I, I think it's been really helpful um, having these different waves of energy and different people stepping into different roles, um, depending on what their capacity is. To, to help kind of stave off the burnout, but also to infuse it with different ideas, different strategies, and different kind of creative approaches, and also helped us to connect with different disciplines and to truly build a campaign that's connected to the various different pockets of grad student employees that, um, that wouldn't have been possible if, if, we had, if there had just been the same core group of organizers um, over time. And of course, um, some of the, the, the staff um, and the, the professionalized organizers have played really critical support roles too in terms of ensuring um, that the grad student employees not only continue to have 
an important voice in shaping the direction of the campaign and a decision making in terms of shaping the campaign, but also kind of the, the resources and the support, right? The, the actual um, capacity is maintained. So, so having that relationship with the steel workers has um, been really critical for especially such a, a long campaign um, and also resource heavy campaign. We're talking a massive amount of um, literature produced, videos produced, uh, different media campaigns produced. Uh, and, and so, so there have been a lot of moving pieces for such a huge effort. And, and really what I would say is that having all the different players involved has been really critical. And I think that that extends to other movements as well. Uh, not everybody can serve all roles. Not all of us have capacity that stays the same over time. I know, for example, um, I was not a parent when the, the campaign began. And now, now I'm finding that while I still do on the ground canvassing, right, often I'll be able to come in instead and do a panel and talk about the history of our, our efforts. And that takes a different type of energy and capacity. Uh, so, so that it's important to meet organizers and activists and other participants and supporters kind of where they're at. And an effective campaign, an effective mobilization is able to have the flexibility to both value and also create space for um, those shifting roles and responsibilities that, that we all have um, and that are changing over time. As we close out this conversation, I want to just ask, are there any parting insights or thoughts you want to share with folks about your experiences with this union campaign or where you see the movement for liberation going? In terms of the campaign, I would say to other graduate student uh, employees, other contingent faculty, other workers at large who are in the process of working to ensure your rights, who are working to ensure the security, uh, not only financial security and economic security for yourself and for your families, uh, but, but also to uh, ensure kind of your bigger picture uh, kind of uh, ability to meet your, to meet your, your needs, um, hang in there. There is a national mobilization underway. The momentum is there. And the work that you're doing right now is absolutely essential, not only for contesting capitalism, neoliberalism, but for ensuring that we are working towards a more liberatory society. And in terms of kind of the final thoughts, uh, I think again, really for me, what is so essential, no matter what struggle you are part of, what is so essential is for us to understand that until all of us are free, regardless of what mobilization, regardless of what your particular uh, kind of issue area is, that until all are free, which really, really necessitates understanding that my struggle is bound with your struggle, uh, until there's that recognition and the solidarity work that, that happens to provide the support necessary so that all struggles are being waged 
uh, then we're not going to have that, that liberatory, truly liberatory society. And, and I think I, I wrote about this elsewhere, and I know you and I have talked about this in the past, um, Alex, but one of the things that I found very helpful in terms of understanding how to approach solidarity, right? Because it's one thing to say our struggles are interrelated, right? That, that's great to say on paper. But it's another thing to understand how to actively shift to putting this into to practice, right? Because, of course, uh, the way state-based repression, the way structural oppression works is, is that it pits our struggles against one another. And, and, and that different people experience different forms of, of oppression in different ways. And so I think it's important to understand that at different moments, um, we may need to concentrate our efforts on, on certain struggles or mobilizations. And at other times, we may be emphasizing something else. Uh, but, but for me, I, I envision this as kind of a, a tangled knot where each of the different strands represents kind of a, a form of oppression and and that unless we ultimately find a way to loosen all the different strands of that knot that the knot of oppression is going to remain in place so sometimes we'll pull on one strand and sometimes another but we need to disentangle it entirely or we won't be able to truly see a free society for all. With that, thank you, Hilary Lazar, for being on Labor Wave, and we hope to have you again soon. Thanks so much, Alex.